It's a joy to greet you all in the name of the Lord. We are gathered here by His invitation in His presence to hear from Him. It's a special honor to be here to share with you the Scripture of the morning, which we will speak about under the theme of Word-Centered Mission, Biblical Foundations for Missions from Ezra 7, 1 to 10. Let's stand for the hearing of the Word. I ask that you not turn to it in your Bibles. The Scriptures are written that we might hear it in community. If you're following in your Bibles, you will be distracted by my odd pronunciation of some of the names we will encounter in this text, or you'll be wondering what translation is he using uh, uh, this morning. So let's all hear the Word of God together without those distractions. This is the Word of the Lord. After this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merayoth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Bukki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the Torah of Moses that the Lord the God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, the temple servants, also went up to Jerusalem. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he arrived in Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the Torah of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his ordinances and judgments in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In the literature and tradition of post-exilic Judaism, the figure of Ezra towers above all his contemporaries like a cedar of Lebanon over an acacia hedge. According to the rabbis, for Ezra, the study of the Torah had higher priority than anything else, even building the temple. His zeal in spreading the Torah was so great that Rabbi Jose declared Ezra would have been worthy of receiving the Torah had Moses not preceded him. Indeed, he was so highly esteemed in Jewish legend that Muhammad denounced them for calling Ezra the Son of God and Messiah, just as Christians had done with Jesus. Now, it's doubtful that ever occurred, but these 
quotations illustrate the reputation of this man outside and inside the Jewish community. But who was he? What does the Bible have to say about him? Perhaps when we've answered these questions, we may have discovered a worthy ideal to hold before all of us who are interested in missions for the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ and the advance of His kingdom. Now, all that we know about Ezra we learn from the biblical books of Ezra and Nehemiah. According to the text that we read, Ezra was the leader of a new wave of Jews who came, who returned from exile to Jerusalem in 458 B.C. Now, chapter 7, verse 9 notes that the returnees arrived at their destination three months after they left Babylonia, but the text suggests it took 12 days actually to prepare for the trip. But nevertheless, the adventure, the venture was a success and it demonstrated Ezra's leadership skill. But it still does not tell, explain, how he was accepted to be their leader of these people. Ezra's objective, we should say professional credentials for official ministry, are summarized in two words in verse 11, and several times thereafter. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. It's evident that he was recognized as such by both his people and the Persian king himself. As a priest, we don't know if he ever served as high priest, as tradition insists in Josephus, for example, but the point of the genealogy we read, which put you all to sleep, that's like having devotions in a telephone book, But this priestly lineage highlights his descent from Aaron. This Ezra was a descendant of Aaron. Therefore, he had the right pedigree to perform Levitical and priestly duties for the new community. Second, he was a scribe. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, that word has all sorts of negative legalistic connotations. But not in the Hebrew Bible. There the word usually denotes a high officer of the court, a, a secretary appointed to record official business. Some suggest he was commissioner for Jewish affairs in the imperial court of Artaxerxes. I'm not sure that was the case, but in any case, we know that the Persian emperor had great confidence in him and invested him with great authority. But Ezra was no ordinary scribe. The text calls him a skilled scribe, which highlights his efficiency and his competence as reader and writer. But it's not his skill in handling the business of Artaxerxes' court that impresses the author, but his facility with the official record, did you notice, of the court of heaven. He was a scribe of the words of the Torah of Moses, verse 6 and verse 11, the scribe of the words of the commands of the Lord and his ordinances concerning Israel, verse 11. 
And even the Persian monarch recognized his place in the divine court. Twice he calls him the scribe of the Torah of the God of heaven. Now that is quite an honor. Those who are called into the service of the Lord are not called into menial service. They go out as ambassadors of the King of kings and Lord of lords. But these professional qualities, credentials, may be impressive. They speak of his right pedigree and of his professional skills, but in this regard he may be like a modern minister or theologian who comes from a long history of scholars and has graduated from the best seminaries and colleges. He's developed great skill in handling the Scriptures. He can parse any Hebrew or Greek verb. He can analyze any text. He can parrot all that the critical scholars have to say about the Scriptures and is able to communicate his knowledge with great erudition. Sounds like a sure recipe for effectiveness. And this is the way we often treat it. Look for people with the right connections, the right talents, the right experience, and send them out. This approach may appear credible on the outside, but this is not how the kingdom of God works. As as it was for Ezra, so it must be for us subjective, internal, personal heart qualities are more important than diplomas on the wall or a long resume. Let's look then at his subjective commitments. Two qualities stand out in particular. First, Ezra was submissive to the hand of God. Did you hear that as I was reading? This happens twice in 7.6 and 7.9. Even the Persian emperor recognized that the good hand of God was upon him. And in verse 28, Ezra gives his own testimony. I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. But Ezra knows that he doesn't have a monopoly on the hand of God. Sounding like Paul in 8.18, he acknowledges the good hand of God in providing more than 200 credentialed Levitical temple servants who could lead the restored community of Jews in proper worship of the Lord in the temple. But the Lord does not impose His hand on people normally against their will. This is his response to subjective commitments to him and submission to his lordship. Ezra testifies to this publicly before King Artaxerxes of all people. He says in 8.22, the hand of our God is for all those who seek him for their good but his power and anger against all who forsake him. Well, you notice from that that the hand of God works two ways. On the one hand, it works positively for those who seek him, and it works punitively for those who abandon him. 
We cannot be passive about our spiritual commitments and expect the good hand of the Lord to be on us. This is especially true for leaders in God's kingdom, for ministers of the gospel, for those whose whose hand God, those who have been tapped by the hand of God for missionary service. His benevolent and providential care is extended to all who seek Him, His kingdom, and His righteousness. Ezra was submissive to the hand of God. Second, Ezra was submissive to the will and the word of God. Now, in my own pursuit of the work to which God has called me, verse 10 has been kind of, sort of, my theme verse. The lodestar that has guided the nature and the direction of my whole life. Those who are called into Christian service generally and into missionary service particularly do well to follow the commitments of Ezra. Now, I must admit, this is a missions conference, and we're trying to figure out what the place the Word has in mission. I have to, in the interest of full disclosure, acknowledge Ezra was no foreign missionary. Ezra was involved in work with his own people, first in Persia and then in Jerusalem. But he was not a Jonah sent to Ninevites, as far as we know. Uh, He never preached to a foreign audience. He was not a Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Ah, but the principles that governed his life Specifically, the word-centered nature of his commitments apply universally to God's people and particularly to college church as we engage in missions that is grounded in Scriptures and pursues the impulses of the heart of God. That's what we're after. As was the case with Ezra, we don't learn these principles by listening to motivational speakers who can tug at our hearts and appeal to our vanity, nor do we find it in bestseller books. No, at this point we hear the watchword of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. The Scriptures are the only sure and firm access we have to the mind of God regarding the foundations for a theology of missions and preparing for being engaged in missions ourselves. Of course, this is not a casual interest in the Word as the basis. Ezra's commitment here is expressed in the opening clause. He set his heart. Actually, that word heart here, 50% of the time in the Hebrew Bible, it actually applies his mind. Biblical Hebrew has no separate word for brain. This is your insight. He was internally committed to studying the Torah. Ezra was a man who could say with a psalmist, how I love That word doesn't mean just how I have a nice feeling about the Torah. No, it's a word of covenant commitment. How I 
am committed, covenantally committed, to the Torah of the Lord. It's interesting that nobody in the Bible ever brags about how much he or she loves him, God. Not once. But in Psalm 119, 119, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, eight times the psalmist says, how I love the Torah. We do it the opposite, don't we? Jesus said, if you love me, tell me. No, he didn't say that. If you love me, keep my commands. That's the proof of love. Well, the focus and nature of Ezra's commitment are described in the following qualifying phrases. He committed himself to studying the Torah of the Lord. That's a variant for the Torah of Moses, which we have in verse 6. They refer to the same thing. Now, by New Testament times, the word, I mean Torah of the Lord, is always translated law of the Lord, which is unfortunate then wonder why the Hebrew Bible, the First Testament, is a dead book to us. We call it the law of the Lord. Torah doesn't mean law. Torah means teaching, revelation, authoritative instruction. This is the Torah of Moses, the Torah of the Lord. Now, by New Testament times, it's always translated law of the Lord. And that expression applies to the whole Pentateuch. Jesus talks about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the three parts of the Bible. Obviously there, law means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By then it had come to… Not so here. It's not the whole Bible yet. By, at this stage, the Torah of the Lord refers to the scroll that contains the speeches of Moses, his farewell addresses in the book of Deuteronomy. You know that from, uh, from 1 Kings 22 to 23. They were cleaning the temple and they discovered a scroll. Not even the scribe knew what it was, or not even the priest. So they give it to the prophet Huldah, who reads it. Whoa, this is the Torah. And it is. Everybody acknowledges it. This is not the Pentateuch. You can't get the whole Pentateuch on one scroll. That's why it's called five tukes five scrolls. This is the Torah of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy. This interpretation is confirmed in Nehemiah 8, where at that great gathering, the people, the congregation comes to Ezra, and they say, Ezra, will you please read the Torah of the Lord? What a congregation. Every pastor wishes He had such a congregation where people have this insatiable hunger for the Torah, the Word of God. And so Ezra reads, and they stand up when he reads. You see, this is an audience with a king. In the the presence of the king, you do not sit. And they rise, and he reads to them the Torah from break of dawn till noon. You can't read the Pentateuch in that time, but you can read Deuteronomy, the Torah of Moses. The clincher in that whole argument is by the time they are done reading, Ezra's done reading the Torah, it dawns on them 
Moses had written in chapter chapter 31, verses 9 to 13, this Torah is to be read every seven years at the festival of Sukkot, of booths. What do they do? They celebrate the festival of booths because they have heard this in the Torah of the Lord. Now, Ezra studied other things as well in chapter uh, 7, verse 11. He was learned in the words of the commands of the Lord and His statutes to Israel. That probably refers to the ordinances that God revealed at Sinai. But the Torah is an explication of it all. There's no doubt in my mind that in Ezra's day, they had the whole Pentateuch. They had these documents, but the Torah scroll was a separate scroll. It was a study of these scriptures that Ezra committed himself to. Now, he could have spent his time studying the scriptures of the Persians or the Canaanites or the traditions of the rabbis as they develop their oral interpretations, but no, for him, access to the mind and the will of God came through the Scriptures. Cast in the voice of Moses in Deuteronomy, the people heard the voice of God. It was the study of these Scriptures that he committed himself to. Now, in these Scriptures, he discovered, he learned the Lord's theology of mission. He learned that God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to be the founder of a nation of a nation that was to be a light to the world. He learned that at Sinai the Lord had ordained them as his priests. He had designated them as his holy people, his segula, his special treasure, and he had ordained them for all the earth is mine, he says. God didn't save Israel to save Israel. He didn't ordain Israel to priestly service for Israel's sake. He ordained them for mission's sake. That's the theology. And the same is true for us. Peter got it exactly right in his commentary on this uh, verse. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9, brilliantly, that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's our mission. Deuteronomy 26, 19, in the Torah, the Lord set Israel high above all the nations that he had made for praise, fame, and glory, for they are a people consecrated to the Lord as he has spoken. Praise, honor, and glory. Whose praise, honor, and glory? Not Israel's. It's not about Israel. It's that the world might see what grace can do and give great glory to God. Everyone who is stamped with the name of the Lord is called to proclaim that grace in their missional uh, agenda. That's true also for us here at College Church. Fundamental to to the Scriptures 
which climax in the New Testament, is the conviction that the only solution to the human sin question is the grace made available through the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus our Savior. That we learn from the Scriptures. And for the First Testament people, they learned that from Moses, not necessarily knowing of Jesus, but knowing of the Word of God and the promise of God to forgive their sins. We here at College Church have been so blessed with great teaching and preaching but we daren't let our guard down or be tempted to look elsewhere for paradigms for missions or for the qualifications of those we send out. We must be devoted to the Torah. And it is in the study of the Torah that we learn that. Second, Ezra committed himself to applying the Torah. Now, many of us who stand behind pulpits have what I call a homiletical hermeneutic. When we are reading the Bible, we're always asking, what do the people need? But that's not where we should start. It's not where Ezra started. He studied the Torah, and he did it. His first mission after the study, is to go out embodying that message. The Lord, through Moses, had said this of kings long ago. The king, when he sits on the throne, is to read this Torah for himself, not for the people. That he, the king, not turn away, turn aside from the way. That he walk in the ways of the Lord. And that his head, nose, not be lifted up above his countrymen. It's for the king so that the people can see in the king. That's what covenant righteousness looks like. He embodies it. Ezra committed himself to doing this. He read the Torah for himself, not just to get sermons ready or a Sunday school class, but for himself, so that his teaching then was confirmed and affirmed by his life. Any missionary program, anyone who aspires to missionary service must assume this spiritual paradigm. It is easy for leaders in any context to treat their leadership positions as a means of building our own kingdom instead of the Lord's and forget that leaders are not called primarily to rule over people, but to serve them, to model the message they preach. We call this incarnational missions. And of course, Jesus is the supreme example. Have this mind in yourselves which was in Christ who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. This is Christ. 
What our missions program needs is faithful Christians who will ground their theology in the Word and let that Word govern their lives, who walk in the ways of the Lord, who embody the life of love and forgiveness, of grace and sacrifice that is so lacking in our world today. Have you watched television lately? What's been going on in this country? It has become so ugly. It's tribal. We hate each other. No, not for us who embody the grace of Christ. We who represent the kingdom mission need to embody that mission. Third, Ezra committed himself to teaching the Torah. But did you notice the order? It has to be in this order. He is called to teach, but he doesn't teach before he has studied. And he doesn't teach before he has integrated, embodied that which is. We tend to do the opposite. We tend to, I mean, we want the public gifts. When I was at another seminary every year at the beginning of the semester in orientation week, the new students had to make a big poster of themselves, and it was posted in the gym. And among the questions they asked of these students was, what, are your, what is your spiritual gift? These are new seminary students. Well, guess what? They would put down there. 80% preaching. My question was, have you ever preached a sermon? Who told you that? How do you know? And of course, my sense is more often this is not a sense of giftedness, but is a vain ambition. Paul talks about this. We want the public gifts. No, before we're talking about our gifts, we need to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit in our lives. That's what we embodied. The present generation needs to see people who model this, who study, apply, and teach in that order. When Ellen and I got married in 1966, that was right shortly after we graduated from Bible college, we thought the Lord was calling us into foreign missionary service, and we planned with that in mind. And in 1967, at the annual meeting of the Mennonite Brethren denomination in Coldale, Alberta, in front of 2,000 people, we were presented as pre-candidate candidates. And the mission board told us, get a little more education and we'll send you out. Well, we got a little more education. And guess what happened? After we were done, I got a position at Winnipeg Bible College, and there we were for 10 years. Well, I suppose, I mean, this sense of foreign missionary service was on the back burner. I suppose we could say that in 1983, we finally became foreign missionaries, foreign missionaries because that's the year we moved across the border. <laughs> but you have to be very careful where you say that. But I do want you to know this is a foreign land to us. Not anymore. We feel at home here. So thank you very much. And College Church is so home for us. Thank you. We feel at home here. 
But it was on the back burner, this sense of calling, until 1993. The walls came down in Eastern Europe, remember? And the Russian Baptists started a brand new seminary. They'd never had one. They had correspondence schools here and there and little institutes all across the country, but never a seminary. And I was on sabbatical, so they invited us to come to Moscow to teach the first class. What a great day that was of celebration. I had 17 students from nine time zones. An amazing event. I was on sabbatical the whole year, and we decided that if we finished our projects, I'd go back in spring. So we were there for two months in the fall, and then in spring, back for six weeks. Well, it's not only that that significant service in the land of my father's birth, when I preached in the Moscow Central Baptist Church the first time, I began by saying, for 60 years my father's been praying for you. And it was such a privilege to be back there where he grew up. But that changed my life. Since 1993, our lives have been a whirl. We can hardly keep up with the doors that have opened across the world for the ministry of the gospel. What a privilege. What an honor. And there are times when I feel like I'm a gecko in the king's palace. What am I doing here? How did we get here? Who am I? I'm just a a poor farm boy from the sticks of northern Saskatchewan. Ah, but it is the passion for the church and the passion for the Word that the Lord has built into our souls. It's like Jeremiah says, if I try and stifle it, it's like a fire that wants to explode inside me. And it's not only that. I've also had the incredible privilege of mentoring students who today are all over the world, my doctoral students, in Vietnam, in Japan, in Australia, in Jordan, in Pakistan, in Colombia, or Bolivia actually now. They're all over, in London. And I pray every day that they would never lose sight of Ezra's vision. Set your hearts to study the Torah, the Scriptures, all the Scriptures, to apply the Torah, and to teach the Torah. As we reflect on biblical and scriptural foundations for missions at College Church, and as some of us contemplate that call, and I hope that out of this crowd we get a half a dozen more, whom God taps on the shoulder. We need to pray that the Lord would open our eyes to recognize those whom God has called. Tap them on the shoulder. This is what the world needs. They need people who are transformed by the answer.
animating breath of God that is found in His Scriptures. As Paul says to Timothy, you know that the Holy Scriptures are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, that is through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture comes as the breath of God and is effective for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, for the thorough equipping of every person of God for every good work. That's pretty comprehensive. Of course, this says more about the power, life-giving power of the Word than about its inerrancy. I think it does imply that, and I am there. But this is not about that. This is about the power of the Word. And notice, Paul is talking about the First Testament, the Hebrew Bible. You call it the Old Testament. It is life-giving. God who breathed His breath into a piece of dirt, making it come alive in Genesis 2-7, does the same thing today through the Word of God. We need a new generation of scribes in the tradition of Ezra. To this calling I have committed myself. To this calling college church is committed. Will you consider how God might use you in that word-centered mission to reach our world? My prayer is that the good hand of God would be upon all of us as we set our hearts and minds to study, apply, teach, testify, witness, that the world may know that there is a God in heaven And this God is among us. He is a God whose voice we hear in the Scriptures and whose Word was incarnate in Jesus Christ, our Savior and the living Lord. May God energize us with His Spirit and His Word to be those kinds of ambassadors as we try to fulfill a word-centered mission. God bless you.